This year, the Palm Sunday story comes to us from the Gospel according to St. Luke. You know, all four Gospels in the Christian New Testament are sometimes called passion stories with extended introductions. That is to say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are most interested in Jesus' death and resurrection. The last eight days of his life are most interesting to them. So all four of them spend at least 40% of their space and energy on the last eight days of Jesus' life. Um, 60% on 30 years, 40% on 8 days. And this is most true of St. Luke, who begins his story of the last 8 days of Jesus' life already in chapter 9, or about one-third of the way through this, the longest gospel. And so the Palm Sunday story, one verse from chapter 9, and then the story proper about the parade in chapter 19. When the days drew near for Jesus to be lifted up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem, and then they brought a colt to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they'd seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stay silent. And Jesus said to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, Jerusalem, had only recognized the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. This epiphany and Lent I've been preaching sort of verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. He tells us early in that letter that he's writing from a prison cell, so I've called this sermon series Letters from Prison. A friend of mine was noticing that I'd gotten to chapter 4, verse 8 in my series of sermons. It's spring break. A lot of us can't be here today. She was going to be out of town this morning. She says, are you going to be preaching about this passage uh, on Sunday? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh, shoot, maybe I'll change my airline ticket so I can be there. I I don't see her here, so I don't think she did that, but... Um, She said, this is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. I I try to live my life by this passage. And so she just made my precious little Presbyterian preacher's heart go (laughs) pitter-patter. Just two beautiful verses from uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul writes, I have learned whatsoever state I am in, therein to be content. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be well-fed, and I know what it is to be hungry. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. And I said, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll bet you dinner for four at Gibson's that Donald Trump will not be campaigning this year in Berkeley or Ann Arbor. And likewise, that we will not see Hillary Clinton here in Kenilworth. I'm guessing that Columbus, Ohio is not Jim Harbaugh's favorite place to recruit. 
And when Joe Girardi visits Boston, they do not offer him the key to the city. You will notice that Winston Churchill never visited Berlin until Adolf Hitler had been dispatched. And likewise, President Obama is unlikely to pay a diplomatic call to North Korea. And so you get the point. Stay out of enemy territory. If they hate you in a place, don't go there. And this wisdom is what makes Luke's account of the Palm Sunday story so remarkable. Starts already, as I said, in chapter 9. We're about one-third of the way through this gospel. Chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be lifted up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is what's going on. For the year just prior to this verse, Jesus has been hanging out in the relatively friendly confines of his native Galilee, up there in northern Palestine, around his hometown of Nazareth. But only a third of the way through the story, Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face to go to the place where they hate his guts. I'm not exaggerating. You heard Joe's call to worship. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where Pilate has his palace. Jerusalem is where Rome keeps its Palestinian legions. Jerusalem is headquarters to the religious establishment, the capital city of that land which is called the way we have always done things. And so Jesus' revolutionary ideas are challenging, threatening many, many ancient cushy jobs. So this is like Bilbo Baggins going to Smog's lair or Frodo taking his ring to Mount Doom in Mordor or Captain Kirk vacationing on planet Klingon. And Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face to go there, precisely there. It's a picturesque and vivid way of telling us that Jesus gets all stubborn on his disciples, right? He will not change his mind. He sets his face. He clenches his jaw. He has a steady gaze. He squares his shoulder and starts striding south to Jerusalem at a pace so brisk his disciples can't keep up. Now why is he so insistent on going to exactly the place where they hate his guts and where they will kill him? You don't need a PhD in the New Testament to answer this question. It is his destiny. It is his mission. This is why he was placed on this earth. He has a point to make and a church to create and billions of souls to save. This is what life expects from him. This is what God expects from Jesus. So I want to come to that, back to that idea of what life expects from us in a moment. But first I want to finish this sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is the eighth one. It's a long sermon series on a book that's only four chapters. Why eight sermons on a book that has only four chapters? I'll answer that question. And also, why preach so many sermons about prison to people who have never been there and never will be? That's not our experience, is it? Well, that's a good question, too. I'm glad you asked. Because prison can take many different forms, right? It is a symbol of every misfortune which can cage us into a narrow space and deny us the fulfillment of life, the prison of ill health, the prison of ungainful employment, the prison of unmet potential, the prison of heartbreaking grief. 
A couple of weeks ago, I told you about Walter McMillan, the black man who, in 1986, in Harper Lee's hometown of Monroeville, Alabama, was convicted by an all-white jury of first-degree murder and then sentenced to die by a judge named Robert E. Lee Key, Jr. How would you like to go under trial in Alabama under a judge named Robert E. Lee Key? Walter sat on death row for six years until Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative was finally able to prove his innocence. When the crime had been committed, Walter was at a church party. Forty different people, including a policeman, were willing to testify in court that he couldn't have done it. So Brian takes six years to get him off death row, hundreds and hundreds of hours, and every trick they ever taught him at Harvard Law, and Walter finally gets out of prison. In 1993, Brian Stevenson, the attorney, stays in touch with Walter for the next 20 years until uh, Walter dies in 2013. At the end of his life, Walter suffers from dementia, and it gets so bad that they have to put him into a memory unit at a nursing home. And Walter was this jovial, outgoing guy, and everybody in the nursing home loved him. They treated him beautifully there, but Walter didn't understand. In the fog of his dementia, he felt like he was back in prison. And he begged Brian Stevenson, man, he says, you've got to get me off death row. Why they throw me in death row again, he said. Why they want to lock me up again. It was the delusion of his dementia. Or was it? Who's been on a death row like that? My mom died in a memory unit of a nursing home. They couldn't have treated her more wonderfully. But it was her death row. Prisons may be of several kinds. And so we know what Paul's talking about, right? We, we know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer's talking about. Martin Luther King, Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, Nelson Mandela. Prison may be of several kinds. And Paul has some great advice for us. He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therein to be content. I know what it is to have plenty, and I know what it is to have nothing. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so none of the prisons that entrap us need rob us of meaning and joy in our lives because Christian joy is not dependent upon external circumstance. Christian joy is in here, right? Not out there. Because we belong to Christ. And Christ has a greater glory for us than we ever dare to dream. Joy has nothing to do with external circumstance. Paul doesn't say like Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. What Paul says is, don't worry, rejoice. Paul's not after happiness. Paul's after joy. Because happiness is dependent upon external circumstance, right? The English word happy comes from the core, uh, the core syllable hap, which is related to happen and perhaps and happenstance. It's accidental in our lives. Happiness might happen or it might not. It's an accident. And what Paul craves is this deeper, more resilient characteristic of Christian joy. 
Because we all know this, right? Joy is never dependent upon external circumstance. Fortune and joy are never directly proportional to each other. They're independent. Our attitudes, good and bad, joyful or joyless, tend to follow us around from ghetto to mansion like a stray dog. So that word translated contentment in our English New Testaments really means um, self-sufficient. It means that I belong to myself. It means that what you do has no power over me. I am my own man. You are your own woman. If I place my disposition at your disposal, I have sold what little freedom I have left. And I don't belong to myself any longer. One more thing and then I'll quit. Have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning by the Viennese psychiatrist Viktor Frankl? It is just a beautiful, beautiful book. I read it for the third time this week and I almost never read a book for a third time. It was originally published in 1946 and there is nothing stale about it. Over the last 70 years, 10 million copies have been sold in 40 languages. Sometimes it's called one of the 10 most influential books ever written. Before he died in 1997, at the age of 92, 29 different universities had granted Dr. Frankel an honorary doctorate. Man's Search for Meaning was originally published in 1946 under the title saying yes to life in spite of everything, a psychologist experiences the concentration camp. Dr. Frankel was Jewish and spent three years in Auschwitz and other Nazi concentration camps. When he was taken away to Theresienstadt in 1942, his wife Tilly had been working in a German munitions factory. And so her work was crucial to the German war effort and she did not have to go to the concentration camp. But she decided to stay with her husband and she went to Theresienstadt with him. Dr. Frankel survived the war at Auschwitz until he died at Bergen-Belsen. Dr. Frankel also lost his mother, brother, and father to the Holocaust. And he says, we who lived in the camp all remember the men who walked through the huts giving away their last crust of bread. And they are proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And he said essentially that there were two kinds of people in the Nazi concentration camps. They had two different questions. Many people asked the question, what can I expect from life? It's not a bad question. We all have the right to ask, ask that question. But other people in the camps asked the question, what does life expect from me? Guess which question allowed the asker to survive the camps? Just turning the subject and the predicate on their heads just changes everything. What does life expect from me? He says, I tell my students in America and in Europe, 
I tell my students, don't aim for success. If you aim for success, you'll just miss it. Happiness and success can't be pursued. They must ensue. And he's right about that, right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson was probably right to tell the King of England, we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but he probably also knew that you can't pursue happiness, right? If you pursue happiness, it flies away. Happiness and success are like the cute brunette who sits next to you in history class. If you pursue her, she will run away. But if you ignore her, she will be intrigued. (laughs) Happiness and success are like the clever conclusion I hope to slap on my sermon every Sunday. If I pursue it, if I lock myself in my study with a blank legal pad or computer screen and focus on that snappy conclusion, it will never come. But if I take the dog for a walk or pay a hospital call on a parishioner, then it might just show up unbidden. So happiness and success come upon you when you are looking for greater things. The meaning of your life the good of your neighbor. What does life expect from me? Even if that answer is very hard, like it was for Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, we have to give the right answer, and then success will come upon us. The great preacher from New York City, Morris Boyd, told a story a long time ago, old story. A young woman whose legs were seriously crippled entered a college classroom, dragging her braces behind her. And she sat next to a young man who was intrigued by her plight. And one day, after a few days, he summoned up the courage to ask her what had happened to her. And she told him that when she was very young, she had had a bout with polio and that she'd been crippled ever since. And the young man said to her, well, that must color your attitude towards life. And she said to him, she said, I, it colors my life, but I get to choose the color. Yes. And it won't be the black of despair or the blue of depression, but the gold of opportunity. I have learned, says Paul, whatsoever state I am in, therein to be content. I know what it is to have plenty, and I know what it is to have nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Circumstance does color our existence, but we get to choose the color, and that's what life expects from us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.